Well, if you want to get your Bibles out a while, would you turn with me to Luke chapter 4? <clears throat> Luke chapter 4. This morning we're going to look at the verses 14 to 30 as we continue our series, The Doctor's Cure. There have been a couple of, uh, I would say, noteworthy, um, can't forget them, tragedies in my lifetime. Not to me personally, but I think about around the world. I was too young, uh, or wasn't born World War II, um, born right at the end of the Korean War. So I don't know anything about that. Of course, we had the Vietnam War, 53,000 um, American servicemen lost. But the, in the, in the, uh, as a world perspective, there have been a couple of other things that have taken place that have uh, been kind of haunting to me. One of them was the, um, the killing fields of Cambodia in the wake of the uh, Vietnam War. The other one was the Rwanda genocide in 1994. If you don't know the story, um, in the country of Rwanda, uh, the president's plane, 1994, was shot down. And there was a lot of uh, tribal rivalry in Rwanda between the majority Hutu people and the Tutsi people. The Tutsi people had been in power uh, prior to the end of the colonial period in 1959. After uh, 59, the Hutus came into power, and, and the, the friction between them never went away. And so when the shootdown occurred, the remaining interim government launched a purge of all the Tutsis in the land. And when I say launch a purge, I don't mean they just went out killing. I mean they, they solicited their own people, their own Hutu people, to go out and kill all of their Tutsi neighbors and their neighbors' families. They would actually issue names, put names on radio broadcasts and say, kill this person, kill this family. And gangs were roaming around the countryside, slaughtering left and right. In fact, in a period of about 100 days, depending on whose statistics you look at, somewhere between 800,000 and 2 million people were killed, if you can imagine that. Now, here's the kicker. At that time, Rwanda was considered the most Christianized African country. The most Christian, over 90% of the people in Rwanda were considered, considered themselves Christians. In a book written in 2010, Dr. Timothy Longman from Boston University, um, he wrote a book entitled Christianity and Genocide in Rwanda. He heads the African Studies uh, section of Boston College. He argues in that book that both Catholic and Protestant churches in Rwanda gave moral sanction to those killings. The church leaders were so tied into the government and political leaders and so forth that they were communicating in various ways that these killings were consistent with Scripture, consistent with church teaching. In fact, in the wake of the massacre, there were various nuns and priests that were indicted for some of the killings. Longman says that church leaders had these close ties with political leaders to such an extent that even after uh, the killing began, they're still promoting the people supporting this in interim government, which was behind the genocide, not just suspected, but made no bones about it. It was clear. Now, we would be naive to think 
that we who love Jesus Christ are not vulnerable to the same kinds of prejudices and biases of rank tribalism like this. We've just come through a very factuous national election in America. And in the midst of that election, some people groups became pawns in these tugs of war in the campaign. And some of our, I say our, I'm going to speak, um, uh, when I say our, I'm going to speak about Americans now, not necessarily Christians, non-Christians, but some of our prejudices came to the surface. We've touched on this before recent months. There's one thing to look and say, we need secure borders and so forth, but, but some of the, uh, some of the, the perhaps innate human DNA that that kind of promotes tribalism, really came to the surface during, during that campaign. It's interesting, back in the 20th century, there was a British psychologist by the name of Henri Tajfeld who developed a research methodology, entitled, uh, they call it the minimal group paradigm. And what he would do is he would take groups of pe- he would take a number of people and he would divide them into two groups. And then he would identify the differences of the two groups by very superficial means. In fact, in some cases, all he would do is flip a coin. Okay, this group is the tails group, and this group is the heads group. Or this group, everybody uh, in this group has something blue on, and nobody in this group has something blue on. And in these experiments, um, he was doing social study experiments. In these experiments, he, he came to realize how zealous people would become about their particular group over and against another group on the basis of extremely superficial, non-consequential differences. And if we divide up along those kinds of non-meaningful lines, how much more about some things that we think, whether legitimately or not, are very meaningful. And the great challenge for us, if I'm talking especially to you who know Christ this morning, the great challenge for us is to wrestle through, do these biases, do these prejudices, do these, uh, this kind of group mentality around which we build a fence and like you're them and we're us, are they rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ or are they rooted in the awful stench of our human DNA that Jesus died for? and died to deliver us from. Luke chapter 4, beginning of verse 14. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to read these verses. Father, there's not a one here, certainly including me, that can say that our arms are open wide to all people no matter what. And we can walk down the street and say, no, they're not of our group. Uh, He's not of our group. She's not of our group. We can see signs and buildings and say, they're not of us. We see skin color. We hear language differences. We see differences of dress. And we are bent to draw conclusions that break your heart and shame your gospel. 
And we need the doctor's cure. And I pray this morning for the power of the Holy Spirit to break through the crusts that the scabs that have appeared in the surface of our hearts when it comes to other kinds of people. And pray that we might stand out as different because of what Christ has done for us. We pray in his name. Amen. <clears throat> then Jesus returned to Galilee filled with the Holy Spirit's power. Don't miss that. Jesus returned to Galilee filled with the Holy Spirit's power. The, the, Jesus did what he did and Jesus said what he said primarily, not because he was God, but primarily because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. We talked about this last week in the temptation. That he went into the temptation with Satan <clears throat> full of the Holy Spirit. We see at the end of chapter 3 that uh, Jesus was baptized and witnesses saw the Holy Spirit descend in some physical manifestation. I think the, God wanted to make the point that I'm going to fill my son with my spirit so that you can know when you are also filled with my spirit that you have great capability as well. So spirit descends on him, chapter 3, chapter 4, Jesus goes out into the wilderness, verse 1, full of the Holy Spirit to meet Satan. And now here we are again. <clears throat> Jesus is returning to Galilee filled with the Holy Spirit, Spirit's power. Reports about him spread quickly through the whole region. He taught regularly in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. This was typical preaching. You would stand to read the scriptures, and then you would sit down to comment on it. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently, and then he began to speak to them. The scripture you have just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Now everyone spoke well of him and was amazed by the gracious words that came from his lips. But how could this be, they asked. Isn't this Joseph's son? And then he said, well, you will undoubtedly quote to me this proverb, physician heal yourself, meaning do miracles here in your hometown like those you did at Capernaum. But I tell you the truth. No prophet, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. In other words, no, no matter what I would do here, it wouldn't impress you. It wouldn't convince you. And now he drops a bomb. Certainly there were many needy widows in the Israel in Elijah's time when the heavens were closed for three and a half years and a severe, severe famine devastated the land. And yet Elijah was not sent to any of them. He was sent instead to a what? A foreigner. A foreigner. A widow of Zarephath in the land of Sidon. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. But the only one healed was Naaman, a Syrian. 
And in my everyday Bible, I have right, written right next to that word Syrian, God's concern for the foreigner. Now look what happens. This didn't go down very well. When they heard this, the people in the synagogue were furious. Jumping up, they mobbed him. This is his hometown. These are the people he grew up with. They mobbed him and forced him to the edge on the, of the hill on which the town was built. They intended to push him over the cliff. This is a lynch mob. But he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. His time had not yet come. Now, Jesus grows up in Nazareth. He stays there uh, until he's 30. He leaves there. He's tested in the wilderness. He's baptized by John along the Jordan River. He, he, now he sets up a new home base in Capernaum, which is on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. That's where Peter lives, some of the other fishermen uh, that he's calling to be his disciples. And from that base in Capernaum, he's moving around Galilee, <clears throat> which would be north of Judea. He's moving around Galilee, preaching in synagogues, and the word is getting around about uh, this guy who's preaching and doing miracles, and, and the reviews are good. And the people in Nazareth, their population maybe 400 during Jesus' day, um, so they would have known him, they would have known his family. It's not a very big town. Joseph and Mary's family is pretty big. We have evidence elsewhere in Scripture that he had at least six siblings. He comes back to Nazareth. He come, he's invited to the synagogue. He's invited to speak at the synagogue. Opens Isaiah up, and he reads these words from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, as well as a verse from Isaiah 58. Now, Isaiah was a normal preaching text, uh, many places in Isaiah. But it's interesting that Isaiah 61, mostly where Jesus was quoting from, is one of the... Uh, portions that speaks about God's future servant. And the Jews understood this is speaking about <clears throat> not just somebody, not just a future prophet, but the future Messiah. And what Jesus, and as Jesus reads this passage, I wonder what the people in the congregation thought. Because probably it didn't describe most of them. He's not talking, the, the prophet is not talking about <clears throat> the well-connected. He's not talking about the prosperous. He's not talking about the merchants in town. He's not talking about the leadership in the synagogue. He's talking about the people who are on the fringes, who are on the margins. He's talking about, he's talking about people who are poor. He's talking about people who are blind. He's talking about people who are prison. He's talking about uh, widows who are having their properties stolen out from under them by unscrupulous lawyers and maybe having to go uh, sell themselves into slavery because they can't uh, survive. He's talking about all the people who have all the strikes against him. And Jesus, is, as he reads this, He's speaking about a time where all of the strikes against these people are going to be reversed. And now look at what's going to happen. Good news is going to come to the poor. Release is going to occur for the captives. Sight is going to come to the blind. The oppressed will be set free. Why? The time of the Lord's favor has come. Now, as I say, these are people that, that are being spoken about in Isaiah who are on the fringes, who are on the outside. And you have to wonder if the people in the, in the pews that, Sunday, that Saturday 
are thinking, uh, is God really interested in those people? Does God really care about the folks that have all those strikes against them? What was interesting, Isaiah was speaking about Jewish people. The people in the synagogue that day were Jewish people. The people that were being spoken about in the Isaiah text were Jewish people, but they were essentially all outsiders. They didn't have going for them what everybody else, probably most other people in the congregation, had going for them that day. Now, this is probably a text they heard many times. So they heard Jesus say it, and they're kind of, okay, we'll get past this, and we're going to go on and go home and have a meal. And then Jesus drops this bomb on them, and he says, this day, this text is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, you and I can't imagine the impact that statement might have had on some in the congregation, because here's what Jesus was saying. The time, this, this, this season, this jubilee, this the beginning of a new era, I'm launching. And because I'm launching it, that means I am the anointed one. Did you read in the text there? In the Isaiah text, verse 18, for he, he, the Lord, spirit of the Lord, he has anointed me me to bring good news to the poor. The word Messiah means anointed one. The Greek word that we have in the New Testament is Christ, Christos. It means the same thing, the anointed one. Jesus is saying, the time is now, it's about to begin, and I'm the one to begin it because I'm the Messiah. Now, the reaction of the people on that day was somewhat mixed. It started out well. It says in verse... Um, Verse 22, everyone spoke well of him and was amazed by the gracious words that came from his lips. Good response, right? But there's this question mark. Isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't he a nobody? <laughs> I mean, we, we saw him grow up. We saw him out in his daddy's shop. Uh, we saw him walk around town. He was a nobody. He hung around with our kids. He played jokes on his sister. They fished down at the creek. To nobody. Is it true when, when there's a somebody among you, proven later, that you kind of scratch your head and like, but, but I knew him, I knew her when she was young, and it's a nobody. How can it, here's the question, how can a nobody grow up to be a somebody? Matthew and Mark record some even harsher words. Let me take you back to Matthew chapter 13. Same incident. <clears throat> verse 55, beginning of verse 55. People are asking in response to the message he's preached. Then they scoffed. He's just the carpenter's son. We know Mary, his mother, and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, Judas. All his sisters live right here among us. Where did he learn all these things? And they were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Now, what's interesting is Jesus came among them as an insider. He was a Jew. They were Jews. He was from Nazareth. They were from Nazareth. They knew his family. He came to them as an insider Messiah, and yet here he's being rejected by insiders. 
They doubted the miracles that he did in Capernaum. Not sure about that. This is the kind of reason that John says in the beginning of his gospel, John 1 11, he says he came to his, Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. They rejected him. They turned away from him. Now, Jesus goes on to drop the second bomb. And it's, it's interesting because if you I keep reading through this text and I'm, I'm, I feel like it doesn't seem like what Jesus says next would necessarily follow. In other words, the fact that they're rejecting him, uh, even though his, his people, uh, doesn't necessarily, I would have gone a little different direction, I think, with my response. But here, Jesus is clued in, Jesus is clued in that there's a bigger picture that they need to get. And that is that ultimately what he has come to bring them is for more than just them. And so he, he says these provocative words here beginning in verse 25 that so infuriated them. He says there's many needy widows. He goes back in Israel's history, back to Elijah's day. Many needy widows in Israel. And yet God sent Elijah to a starving widow not in Israel. And in Elisha's day, many lepers in Israel, but Elisha was sent to someone who is not an Israelite. We've got Sidonians on the landscape. We've got, we got Syrians in the landscape. We've got pagan peoples that God is showing himself to. And Jesus, do you remember the story where Jesus says to someone, it seems so harsh. It seems so mean-spirited. It seems so ungodlike. A woman comes to him. She wants to, be, uh, she wants to have her daughter healed. And, and Jesus says, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. Remember that story? And we look at that and like, that, that's bad. And what happens is we confuse a strategy. Or maybe I should say we confuse an incident with a strategy. Jesus came specifically to the lost house of Israel, the lost sheep of Israel, but he didn't come exclusively for the house, lost house of Israel. In other words, his work was starting in Israel, but it was meant to go far beyond that. Let me take you to Matthew 8, try to prove this. Matthew chapter 8. Hmm, doesn't sound right. Oh, yeah, here we are. Chapter 8, verse 11. This is Jesus' words. I tell you this, that many, who? Gentiles. So non-Jews. Many Gentiles will come from all over the world, from the east and west, and sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob at the feast of the kingdom of heaven. But many Israelites, those for whom the kingdom was prepared, will be thrown into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said to the Jews in John 10, 16, I have other sheep who are not from this sheepfold who will hear my voice and come and follow me. It's not going to just be Jews. So Jesus came specifically to the Jews, but he didn't come exclusively for the Jews. They're where he started. They had, well, as Paul says, the gospel came for the Jew first and then the Greek and then the Gentile. They had, the, they had a leg up. They had the start. They, they had the beginning. 
but they misunderstood it to mean that they were exclusively the ones that God was chasing after and ministering to. And when Jesus had simply given these two, two examples of God's love for the foreigners, what did they do? They didn't go down to the tavern and drink and, and, and curse out Jesus. They took him to the hill of the town and are going to kill him. Do you see how the, the kind of reaction, the intense reaction that a gospel can bring to people, both for good and for ill? There's a reason that Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, but to bring a sword. My guess is this morning that some of you are thinking about going beyond where I've gone so far and saying, I don't like what he's saying. I think I have a right not to like illegal aliens. I think I have a right to be upset that there are Muslim kids going to school with my kids. I think I have a right to decide who lives next door to me and who doesn't live next door to me. I think I have a right to decide who I'm willing to hang out with and who I'm not willing to hang out with. By what standard? By the standard of the Constitution of the United States? Probably do. But if you are a child of the living God through faith in Jesus Christ, you have a different loyalty, brothers and sisters. You have a different standard that is rooted far before the United States Constitution in the gospel that is rooted in the Word of God. Let me take you to a couple of verses, starting with James chapter 2, verse 1. James chapter 2, verse 1. My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? I don't have this on the screen, but let me just read verse 9. I was just looking at this this morning earlier. But if you favor some people over others, don't, don't miss this. If you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. You are guilty of breaking law. You see, on this planet that we live on, people, if you're a follower of Jesus, people who follow Jesus, We've made the mistake sometimes of concluding we're insiders. I'm an insider in this group. I'm an insider in this group. Here's my political party. I'm a Democrat. I'm a Republican. I'm a Libertarian. Here's my ethnic group. I'm white. I'm black. I'm Latino. I'm Asian. I'm Arab. And here's my, here's my school group. I'm Pequay Valley Brave, or I'm an Octorera Brave, or I'm a Costa Valley Buckskin, or I'm an LS Pioneer. I mean, we have all kinds of groups that are broken down that we, we consider ourselves insiders to. 
And yet the picture that we get in Scripture is that those who have surrendered to Jesus Christ are not ultimately insiders in any of those groups. Second Peter, uh, I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapter 2, just a page or two away from James. 1 Peter 2, verse 11. Dear friends, he's speaking to Christians. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and far, oh, and foreigners. We're foreigners. I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Back a couple pages again, the other direction. Hebrews 11, verse 13. This is the the faith chapter that chronicles all the great heroes of the Old Testament. And it says this, verse 13, all these people died still believing what God had promised them But they did not receive what was promised, but they saw it from a distance and welcomed it. In other words, they didn't have the gospel revealed from them, but they had little pieces from the prophets in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 18, I will raise up for you a a prophet like uh, like myself, in other words, like Moses. We know the predictions of a um, child that's going to be born of a virgin, Isaiah uh, 7. The Genesis 3.15 passage, you know, seed of the woman's going to crush the head of the serpent. Little pictures that they would get, but they didn't receive what was ultimately promised. They agreed that they were, these people in the Old Testament, these people of great faith, Jews, they agreed that they, they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. Listen, I fly the American flag at my house. Well, I haven't done it recently because I don't have a place to put it. But I usually fly the American flag at my house. I'm a great advocate of Pequay Valley sports because we live in the Pequay Valley School District and I, I like to cheer the teams. And, and I'm a conservative Republican sort of because that lines up best with my philosophical understanding how the world sh- should be. It's the closest I've got with any major party anyway. I'm, I'm a white guy who speaks English. I, I have all these groups that I'm part of. But at the end of the day, I am a foreigner to all those groups. I'm an alien to all those groups because I'm a nomad. I'm, I'm here traversing this, this, this sod for maybe 70, 80 years if I'm graced by God for that. And then I go on to an eternity. Do you see how this can look? Like it's just a, a, a nomadic adventure here. Well, I mean, compared to the millions and millions of years of eternity that lie ahead, we're just passing through. And God does not want us to put down our roots in such a way that we draw these circles around us that never, God never intended to be around us because he, he sent us to this world to infect the world and to impact the world. And we can't do that unless we love the world. Amen? Like Christ loved the world and gave himself for it. Doesn't say God so loved Americans or God so loved Republicans or God so loved white people or God so loved Asian people. It says God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. So a couple of questions to leave you with. In your mind, is the gospel that saved you just for insiders like you? And if not, 
What are the implications of that? Go deeper. Is the love that God showed you, the love that he, in other words, it came to you first, is the love that God showed you just for you and your kind? And then the personal for each of us. Who is it that God has convinced us is not worthy of our gospel, is not worthy of our love, is not worthy of our prayers, is not worthy of our kindness, is not worthy of our mercy, is not worthy of our help? Who is it for you? And who is it for me that is on such a margin outside of our lives where we say, you know what, I, I just, I can't go there. That's the group that God wants to break your heart and my heart over. Who is it?